On June 6, 1944, Allied troops launched a surprise attack on the shores of France, delivering a significant blow to the enemy forces and ensuring a decisive victory on the Western Front of the war. What was known today as D-Day was a pivotal turning point in World War II. It essentially ended the war, but the war did not end on that day. Rather, it endured for another long and difficult year. The Allied troops had to keep fighting their way all the way to Berlin until the German soldiers surrendered on May 5th, 1945. The victory had been won, but the battle raged on. Some considers that the most fiercest fighting of all the war took place in that one-year period between D-Day and the surrender of, of the German forces. And as Christians, we find ourselves in a similar place. The battle's been won, but the fight is far from over. Christ has defeated the enemy on the cross, but that enemy will not go quietly. He will not leave without kicking and screaming. And the fight will not end, we are told in Scriptures, until Christ returns and finally judges that enemy and cast him away forever. Therefore, as believers, as Christians, we live between the tension of the already and the not yet. The already, the victory's been won. But the not yet, the battle is far from over. The Bible is so clear that we are in the midst of a spiritual war. Satan's forces will remain in the fight until the end. Legions of demons, principalities and powers of darkness. The victory is secure and there we find hope. But nonetheless, we still fight on. What are we to do until Christ returns? Are we just to hunker down in the barracks and try to hide from the enemy? The truth is there's nowhere we can go that the enemy will not find us. He has a way of finding into our lives, into our homes, The truth is we face a spiritual battle and we need the armor of God to endure. Paul has been bringing this letter of Ephesians to a conclusion. Wrapping, tying things up. Having considered God's gracious call in Christ and really the practical implications of the gospel for everyday life. How the gospel has changed our relationships with God how it's changed our relationship with one another, how He's united us together into a family called a church to put on display His glory and and how that has implications to how you and I relate to one another. We've talked about how we are to put on this new righteous character that we have in Christ and to put off the old ways. And, And two weeks ago, we considered Paul's exhortation in Verse 10, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We thought about how the fact that the only way we can be strong is to be empowered by God Himself. Paul has been packing together power words throughout this entire section. If you have your Bibles open, I just want to point them out in in a sense of getting context here. Notice here the, the, the repetition in the text on be strong, power, have power. And this power at the end of verse 10. And in verse 11, power that you might be able, have power, that you might have power. Verse 13, that you might be able, that is, you might have power. 
to do this. Throughout the text, Paul has been making clear that that one needs to be made powerful, that we are weak. And so we thought about how we are weak. And really today, we're going to think about really the application of verse 10. How, How are you strong in the Lord? How is it that you are strong in the strength of his might? Well, it's by putting on his armor. By applying the truths of the gospel in our lives. But before we jump into putting the armor on, it makes sense that we understand why we need the armor in the first place. You're not going to go to battle. You're not going to put on a bulletproof vest. You're not going to get inside of a tank unless you know you need all of that kind of protection. And brothers and sisters, you will not regularly take up the armor of God, as we'll think about next week, what that is. You will not do that if you do not first recognize your need for it. In fact, what Paul is going to argue in verses 11 through 13 is to give you really the reason why you have to put it on. In other words, he's going to push you, say, man, I need that, like I'm not going, I'm not going anywhere in my life without this. This is essentially what Paul is doing here in the text. So let's look at it here. I invite you to turn to page 979 in the Pew Bibles, Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Because Christians face a resilient and fierce enemy, they must be strong in the Lord by putting on the whole armor of God. It is necessary, if you are to endure to the end, that you regularly apply this armor to your life. If you want to make it to heaven, if you want to make it through the traverse war zone of this world, The only remedy is God's armor, is the gospel of Jesus Christ rightly applied. So I'll I'll just give it to you now so you can marinate on it all week. The armor of God is nothing more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. All right. So so, so there's no mystical or, or, or trickery going on here. All Paul's referring to in the armor of God is a... Right application of the gospel for your everyday life. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something you believe and trust in and and then forget about. But it's something that's regularly applied to your life, your mind, your thinking, your heart, your actions. We'll think about all that next week. But before we get there. We want to think about the need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so the purpose of our time this morning is to convince you of that. I hope that, that you leave convinced. That you take this passage seriously. As Christians, conservative Christians at that, we, we often take passages when it deals with spiritual unknown matters and kind of like, oh, 
that seems weird, that seems mystical, that seems sensationalistic. You know, I don't know about that. that. But rather what we should see, rather than sort of stepping back from it, lean into it and and use it for what God intends it for it to be. In other words, you you won't put on this armor until you have a good understanding of what verses 11 through 13 mean. That you need this. And so Paul outlines in our text three reasons why you need the armor of God applied to your life. Three reasons why you need this armor. Number one, because the devil is conspiring to take you out. Secondly, because you face a superhuman spiritual enemy. And therefore, by implication, human means won't work. Your personal ingenuity in dealing with evil will not work. You need spiritual tools to face a spiritual enemy. Thirdly, because you will face evil days ahead. Three reasons we want to think about this morning. Number one, the devil is conspiring to take you out. Look here at verse 11. Paul writes, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We face a scheming enemy. An enemy who is not laying down waiting for you to come along, uh, but rather one who is actively scheming to take you out. Paul begins by giving us an imperative, an exhortation. He says, put on the whole armor of God. The picture here is of a Roman soldier completely suited for battle with all of the, the, the equipment needed to face the enemy at hand. While he doesn't list all the the particulars of what a Roman soldier might wear, it it makes sense by what he uses that it is one going to battle. Paul uses battle language, warfare language. He says you're not going into a preschool and hanging out with little kids. You're, You're going into a battle. And so put on the whole armor of God. Put it on, he says. This is a similar exhortation that he gave us earlier in the letter in chapter 4 when he says, put on the new self created after the likeness of Christ. Put it on. In other words, it requires an ongoing application to our life. Paul here uses the language in a specific way so as to emphasize this ongoing continuous behavior. In other words, you and I need to be ready to face this enemy every moment of every day. This isn't a once-for-all application, okay? It's an ongoing application, right? Uh, so if you put those spray tans on, right, you got to keep putting that spray tan on. If not, it fades away. It requires a re- repeated application. And, and what Paul here is saying is that you need to suit up for battle, But notice the connection in verse 11 here to the exhortation, to the purpose. Paul provides us here a purpose statement, doesn't he? That you may be able to stand. That you may be able to stand. In other words, we're to suit up to be able to stand up against the devil. The purpose here of the the armor of God is that we will be able to stand strong, stand up against the, the devil. 
Notice the, the repetition he has of the word stand here in this, in, this con, in this text. Verse 11, to stand. Verse 13, again, to stand firm. And then verse 14, stand therefore. In other words, Paul is giving us a visual image of a soldier standing. As the enemy is coming at him, he's standing. He's not falling over. He's not falling down. He's, he's firmly grounded on the truth. He's standing firm. We're told here about our enemy, aren't we? And the reason why we're to suit up, verse 11, is because we stand against the schemes of the devil. In other words, we, we are up against a scheming devil. The word devil means slanderer. That's what he is. He's a slanderer, right? He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. That's his chief characteristic. Jesus taught his disciples that the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He's just about death. What are some of the schemes of the devil? How is the devil scheming? Well, Paul's already told us, hasn't he? Look here in chapter 4, verse 25. Put away falsehood. The devil is a liar, has been from the beginning. In other words, when you, when you lie, you're, you're putting on his schemes. You're, you're falling into his traps. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 28, let, let the thief no longer steal. Verse 29, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. Grieve the Spirit of God. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. These are the schemes of the devil. And what do you see is a common theme in all of them? Disunity. If we rightly understand that this, the armor of God, actually fits like a thread in a tapestry in the letter of Ephesians, Everything Paul has said up to this point is summarized in this section. Paul has been preaching and teaching towards church unity. He's been talking about how we've been unified together. And the, the chief scheme of the devil is to disunify the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what he does. He, he sows discord among believers. He sow, sows division among believers. Uh, he sows falsehoods and lies and gossip and thievery among believers in order to divide them rather than unite them. The word Paul uses here to scheme carries the idea with it a, a, an implied plan to, to bring about evil. God is teaching us that we have an enemy who is actively trying to thwart our lives. I know it seems weird for us to talk about it. And we, again, we tend to shy away, you know, one of two extremes, right? Satan's in everything or he's in nothing. Satan's in my, my, you know, my transmission. And that's why it won't work. You know, Satan's in the lights and, you know, that's one extreme. The other extreme is like, no, there's no spiritual things. No, what Paul is saying, no, let's get in the middle of the road and say there there is an enemy who is actively scheming against you and I. One author helpfully commenting on this particular text writes this. The mention of schemes of the devil reminds us of the trickery 
and subterfuge by which the evil and temptation present themselves in our lives. Listen to this closely. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by operative, uh, appearing rather attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It's a baited and camouflaged trap. Paul tells us that, that the enemy, the devil, masquerades as an angel of light. You see, temptation always looks good and right. This is one of the chief schemes of the devil. He, he doesn't come out, you know, full front. Hey, this is, I'm asking you to rebel against God. Think for a moment in the Garden of Eden. He, he doesn't go to Eve and say, hey, if you eat this, man, it, you know, this is, this is horrible, wretched evil. It's a subtle thing, wasn't it? I mean, did God really say that? He caused doubt. He sowed lies. It seemed legitimate. It seemed perfectly fine and desirable. I mean, God wants the best for me, doesn't he? Just a little bit of this won't hurt. A little bit of that. Friend, this is the scheme of the devil. We are told in this text to put on the armor of God that we may be able to stand. In other places, we are told in James chapter 4 to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Paul's point here in these texts is not to scare us, but to embolden us to stand. The point of these texts isn't for you and I to run away like, oh my goodness, we face an enemy who cannot be defeated. No, no, no. The point of this text is to say you are facing an enemy who is defeated and he is preparing you to face this defeated enemy. You've all seen the movie or the show of that heroic firefighter who comes to the scene and he sees the burning building, the family inside, and, and he just has his, his gear on. He doesn't have his mask on and he runs into the building. And he saves the family without any need of oxygen to survive. And anyone who knows reality knows that is untrue. No firefighter in his right mind or her right mind would ever run into a burning building without a mask on. They wouldn't do it. You, you couldn't force them to do it. There could be a family trapped on the top floor burning alive and he or she will not do that. Because they've been trained, if you go in without protection, you die. Friends, you've seen this in your own life. When you aborted the airplane and they give you the little safety spiel at the begin, beginning of the, uh, of the flight. When they tell you, when the mask falls down, put the mask on yourself first, then apply it to a neighbor, then help your kids. Why? Because you're no good for anyone else if you're dead. If you save your child and you die, you're, you're of no help to anyone in that, on that flight. And so apply the protection to yourself. Well, friend, this is so true of our text. If, if you don't put the armor on, if you don't see like I need to apply this to myself, well, then you're no, no help to anyone. No help to yourself or to others. You're nothing more than a proud fool. 
Brother, sister, how are you acting like a fool today? Thinking that you don't need the gospel in everyday life. How are you missing the truth that you face an enemy who is greater than you, bigger than you, and who has some really wicked traps for you to fall into? You know, it's so interesting when you hear stories about individuals who fall into adultery or individuals who fall into particular sins. They will never tell you that it happened overnight. And they'll never tell you that, that it happened and, and, and there was like signs. It's a subtle thing and the enemy is so subtle. It happens slowly. Over time, he, this is how he schemes. He, he gets you a little bit at a time. Friend, he is a scheming enemy. We need the armor of God because we are up against an enemy who will stop at nothing to take out a child of God. Paul continues to offer us yet a second reason. If that's not enough, notice here in verse 12, yet another reason why you need the armor of God. Because you face a resilient and fierce spiritual enemy. Look at verse 12. Look what he writes. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It was as if Paul was saying, this enemy is so massive, so great, and by the way, you can't see him. The worst enemy to face is the enemy you don't know, right? The worst enemy to prepare to, to protect yourself from is the one you can't see. And Paul is saying, listen, we don't wrestle. We don't, we're not at war with things we can see. He's using a metaphor here. Flesh and blood's a metaphor for human beings, right? He's talking about humans. We don't wrestle against humans. Now, now of course, you're like, well, Paul, we, yeah, we do. You just talked about it there in chapter four. Um, no, that's not his point. His point is that we don't, we're, we're in a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. Right? We're, not, we're not literally fighting one another. We understand that there's a spiritual and unseen component to the battle that we are in. We are in a cosmic war, Paul says, between God and the enemy, the devil. We live in a materialistic culture. And because of that, we're, we're so often more focused on physical things rather than on spiritual matters. In other words, we, because we're so used to thinking in physical terms, things we can see, touch, right? Um, just recently, um, our first grader, you know, the very first thing they learn in science is the senses, right? You learn your senses. You can smell, you can touch, you can see, right? That, that's the world we live in, the things that we can embrace. And often we, we struggle to, to, to understand and conceptualize the spiritual, the unseen, And Paul here is reminding us that we face a real battle, a real enemy. Notice the word he uses here, wrestle. Wrestle. In other words, we're wrestling. We're fighting. It's a war. It's a battle. It's a struggle. This isn't easy times. You and I are not in neutral territory. And we face a spiritual enemy. Paul is is saying this, know your enemy. 
If you know your enemy, you will know to put the armor on. You will know to apply it to your life if you rightly understand what you're up against. You face a powerful enemy. A supernatural power of darkness. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds on you know, who all these individuals are. We really don't know. He's mentioned them before, though, in the text. He mentions here in this passage, in verse 12, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. Whoever these principalities and powers of darkness are, There seems to be some hierarchy, perhaps, to the angelic forces of evil that are against us. These fallen angels. Those who are doing the the devil's bidding. Regardless of who these people are, the Bible is really silent on identifying specifically the hierarchy. The point is that they are powerful. And they are supernatural. That they are superhuman. And the point being that they are not an enemy that you can face with physical tools or weaponry. But there's hope in this passage. Remember, I mentioned that Paul had said these these groups before. Just turn over. There's a reason why he mentioned them before. And he's applying it to us now. In chapter 1, verse 19. Remember when he was praying for the church in Ephesus, he said this, I pray that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Or in chapter 3, in verse 9, when Paul told us that the plan, this mystery, was to bring to light for everyone, was the plan and the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, through you and I, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. These spiritual forces of darkness have been put on notice through the gospel of Jesus Christ and through the work that He's doing. And there's hope to know that Christ reigns more powerful than them. And that phrase, in the heavenly places, you will notice was repeated twice in that text. And in both places, Paul is teaching about the union of the believer to Christ and that Christ is in the heavenly places and that you are in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You're united to Christ Jesus. And so these principalities and powers of darkness that you and I cannot see and whose power is greater than ours, we rest and know that our Savior is greater than them. As Paul writes to the church in Colossae, that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Or in 1 Peter 3.22, that Christ has gone into the heavens is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. While we don't know who these wicked forces are, this particular quote I found helpful in identifying them. The, The author writes, These are not earthly figures, 
but supernatural beings whose essential character is wickedness. Although they are powerful and are described as in the heavenly realms, this ought not to frighten believers, for we have been given every spiritual gift in the heavenly places, made alive and seated with Christ in this domain, so that our struggle is against subjected powers. They may rule the realm of darkness of evil, but Christians have been transferred out of this realm. Friend, our hope this morning is, yes, we face a fierce enemy. Yes, a spiritual forces of darkness. Yes, the enemy is real and he is wicked and he is scheming to take us out. And the enemy seems great, but our hope this morning is what we sing in that Christmas carol, God rest you merry gentlemen. Remember that Christ was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Or as Paul writes to Timothy, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save us from Satan's power. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to rescue us from sin and Satan and to deliver us into his kingdom. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope that this text frightens you to believe in Christ, the only one who will free you from this enemy. These powers are greater than anything you can imagine. These forces of evil are significant They are great and mighty, but there is one who has overcome them. His name is Jesus. And Christ came to save us all, to deliver us. And by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ and his death on the cross for your sin and the power of his resurrection, you too can be freed from Satan's power and you can be delivered into a new kingdom with a new king. You don't don't have to answer to the evil one anymore. This power can have no effect upon you. We must see that because we are in the midst of this unseen spiritual battle, we are facing supernatural power stronger than us. That our human minds, our human ingenuity will not fix. This is why you can't overcome your sin. It's why you're struggling right now with that addiction. Why you're struggling with indwelling sin. Because you're trying to battle it. Well, with earthly tools and weaponry. Rather than seeing, as Paul will write later, that why we need to pray. We need to pray because we're up against spiritual forces of darkness greater than us. We need someone more powerful to intervene on our behalf. Our human efforts stand no match to these wicked ones who seek to destroy our lives. Therefore, we need a spiritual armor to go into spiritual battle. And this leads us to our final reason Paul offers in verse 13. We need the armor of God because we will face evil days ahead. Notice what he writes there in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Again, he repeats himself in a summary form. The Christian Standard Bible translates it this way. In this, for this reason, take up the whole armor of God. In other words, in light of evil, 
forces, and in light of, as he looks forward in verse 13, the evil days, we need to apply the whole armor of God. He says, take it up. Pick it up. It's one thing to know about the armor of God. It's completely different to actually apply it, he says. This text offers us a warning, doesn't it? Evil days ahead. Warning. Evil days ahead. Calvin writes this. By this expression, in the evil days, he rouses them to security, bids them prepare themselves for hard, painful, and dangerous conflicts, and at the same time animates them with the hope of victory. For amidst the greatest dangers, they will be saved. Look again at verse 13. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Throughout the text, Paul has been mentioning the evil day. In chapter 5 and verse 16, he says that make the best use of the time because the days are evil. We live in an evil time. The point Paul is making is you're on the battlefield, fool. Get your armor on. If you understand the context in which you're living in, then you'll rightly apply the clothing. If it's cold outside, you put a coat on. If it's sunny, you put shorts on. Or maybe if you're strange, you wear shorts in the wintertime too. I I don't know. But typically, you put the right clothes on for the right season. Paul here is saying you live in the context of evil times. You're not in heaven yet. You've not made it to the celestial city yet. Therefore, put on proper clothes to face the battle ahead. Paul here is saying, listen, there are evil days coming. Perhaps you're in the midst of an evil day. Perhaps an evil day is on its way, but but regardless, prepare, it's coming. Don't wait for the day, get ready today. And so he's rousing them, as Calvin writes, to to security. He's, He's saying, get ready, get prepared. How often did Jesus prepare his disciples? Regularly, particularly in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus was so poignantly clear with his disciples. Get ready. Get ready. Stand firm. Get ready. Or with Peter and James and John and they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Stay awake. Stay alert. Get ready. He's coming. I'm warning you. And he was there. And Peter was not prepared. He did not prepare himself. And quickly the enemy came. And caused him to deny Christ. Little children. John writes. You're from God. And have overcome them. For he who is in you. Is greater than he that is in the world. There's hope in this passage. Look at verse 13 again. That you may. Be able. To withstand. That you may. When we read that in the English. It sounds like. There's a bit of doubt, like you may or you may not. But that's not Paul's emphasis. The emphatic is implied, you will stand. In other words, Paul is giving them confident hope. The point is clear to us. If you are well equipped, you will stand firm against the enemy. Paul is guaranteeing them. That if you apply the armor of God, you will stand firm. 
It's meant to encourage us. So weary saint, take heart, stand strong. You might be facing an evil day, a tempting day. Know that, it, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will stand firm. The point of our passage, I think, is quite simply straightforward. We are to stand firm, not with our own strength, but with the gospel of Jesus Christ in our minds, our hearts, and our lives. One only needs armor if they are in a fight. And the Bible makes clear we are in a fight. But rest assured, though while the battle is fierce, the victory is won. Christ has overcome the evil one. Yes, he is scheming against you. Yes, he has laid traps all over your life. But know that by faith in Christ, you will see and taste victory over sin and death. That he who is in the world, as John said, he, he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. So fight. Fight with all your might with the armor that God has provided. And you will, brother, sister, overcome the evil one. F.F. Bruce quipped this. To be forewarned about the nature of the enemy's wiles is to be forearmed against them. In other words, if, if you know the enemy, you know his tricks. You know the battle is coming. You're ready. You'll be able to face it and you will prevail for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today that it is true, that it is trustworthy, that though we face a wicked and vile enemy who will stop at nothing to see us fall flat on our face, that there is hope of repentance, there is hope of gospel transformation, there is hope because the battle is fierce, but the victory has been won. The victory through the cross of Christ. There we have our hope. Help us, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.